Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hi, I'm Kirk Megu, host of Politics and Polemics on the New Books Network. I also host my own podcast called Independent Thought and Freedom, where I interview some of the most interesting people from around the world who are shaking up politics, economics, society, and ideas. You can find it in the iTunes store or on any one of your favorite podcast providers. You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel. Also, are you an academic that wants to get heard nationally? Check out my free training on three steps how to use your intellectual authority to become a media personality at becomeapublicintellectual.com. That's becomeapublicintellectual.com. You can find the links below. And now, on to this week's episode. Hi, today my guest is Evan Smith, author of the new book, No Platform, A History of Anti-Fascism, Universities, and the Limits of Free Speech. It's published by Routledge this year in 2020. Welcome, Evan. Thank you for having me. Yes, and uh, well, I'm welcoming you here from Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean. Uh, it's it's about to be sundown here, a bright and sunny day. What's it like there in Australia? That's where you are, right? Yes, I'm in Adelaide in South Australia, and it is a cold and rainy morning. Okay, okay. Uh, well, I'm still in Friday. Tell me what Saturday's like. Uh, I can't <laughs> see anything. It's too dark. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, can you just uh, tell our listeners uh, a little bit about yourself and your background, particularly as it relates to this book? Okay, so I am a research fellow at Flinders University in South Australia, and I've done a lot of work on political extremism and social movements uh, previously. A lot of my work had been on the British left and uh, the British far right, actually. And that's how I came into looking at uh, this work. Um, I 
previously written a book uh, published by Brill and Haymarket uh, the other year called British Communism and the Politics of Race. And that had a discussion of no platforming and the fight against the National Front in the 1970s. And that's what really drove my interest uh, to uh, do this uh, research on the wider history of no platform. All right. Um, I'm trying to figure out from your accent, are, are you British? Are you a Brit in Australia or are you Australian? No, I am Australian of British parents and I okay. lived over, uh, lived in Manchester. Okay. All right. So, um, so, uh, so, so doing a history of, um, of the British uh, left or, or just British uh, activist politics has, has some challenges in a way, because a lot of the history you're writing is not necessarily documented. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. So how, how do you get around that? <laughs> um, so there's kind of two paths you can take is one thing is there's a lot of like uh, ephemera and left-wing publications and uh, increasingly internal documents, or you can go the oral history route. But my research has always been based in kind of the publications and the ephemera of the British left. So my original work was on the Communist Party. They, right. And they, because they had dissolved in the 90s, they had deposited their internal archives in the People's History Museum in Manchester. Um, and that's where my work really began. And with uh, the kind of the nature of the British left, there's a lot of people that held on to their own kind of ephemera. Um, yeah. And in the last 10 years, there's been like a, a push to uh, digitise this and put it online. So I've been really helped by uh, by a various bunch of people who have been able to um, make, this, uh, make this available online and particularly writing British history from Australia. I can't always be consulting material firsthand so i have yeah. relied heavily on other people to uh scan documents for me to find various things in the archives uh and that's one of the challenges and it's a challenge that everyone is having now with coronavirus and having to do this kind of research remotely um and i think this writing this book from Australia gave me a good um, kind of experience of what it's like to do research under these new con- conditions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I actually did my master's thesis on the left in Trinidad and Tobago. And, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, and I, I, I mean, I find it, you know, very fun and fascinating also going through all the pamphlets and the little things you find here and there mm. and, and what, whatever. Yeah, yeah. So I can uh, imagine uh you know the way you did your research there too uh so let's see the the book and the the central concept of your book is no platforming so could you just define it for us and also just why is it important to discuss okay so no platforming is both a policy and a tactic so as a tactic it is the idea that uh fascists and explicit racists should not be allowed to uh, speak, organise or disseminate their propaganda in public 
or semi-public places. Um, and as a policy, the National Union of Students implemented a policy in 1974 um, saying that no platform will be given to racists and fascists on university campuses. So as a tactic, it kind of been uh, developed since the 1930s in the fight against fascists in Britain um, and as a policy, it extends from the 1970s. Um, it really gets the name of no platform in the 1970s, uh, a few years prior to the National Union of Students uh, um, policy with uh, the International Marxist Group, which was a Trotskyist group coming up with the concept of no platform for racists. Um, so that's what it is. It's it's both um, a distinct uh, NUS policy, but it's also a wider kind of anti-fascist tactic. And it's important because it has long been portrayed as kind of shutting down free speech. Uh, in Britain, there is no kind of First Amendment, so there's no uh, explicit right to free speech. Yeah. Um but it's kind of a general principle of, you know, liberal democracy and no platforming ha- has been portrayed since it was introduced in the 1970s as kind of like uh, an antithesis to free speech and to academic freedom. And it is important because in the last uh, half decade, um, the tactic has really been controversial uh, in this kind of current ideas that there's a free speech crisis on campuses and this is something that we see both in the UK and also across the English-speaking world. So, um, you know, in North America, in Australia, in New Zealand, in South Africa, um, there's a lot of debate of uh, whether free speech is being killed on campus and then also in kind of wider society. Yeah, I mean, and the position you're basically taking in the book is is a defense of no platforming, um, whereas usually uh, people are, you know, attacking it or reluctantly um, explaining exceptions in, in a sense. Mm. Uh, so you you are you are taking a different tack, correct? Yes. So my book is an interventionist history. So really. The reason I wrote it was because the word gets bandied around a lot, um, no platform uh, and so forth, but really it has a distinct history from both the kind of interwar period but then the 1970s and is that a lot of the contemporary kind of like media discussion and social media discussion had always kind of um kind of talked about it in a historical sense. So my book firstly was to kind of explain the history and what it was as a as a concept throughout its its history. But um it is also a defense of no platforming um because it has been a tactic used by students um and other activists to kind of uh fight racism, fascism and then other forms of of oppression, like so, there'd been no platform of sexist, homophobes, uh, um, and others, other kind of forms of hate speech. And that in the contemporary era, 
when we have kind of a resurgent far right and the kind of um, the intermingling between the conservative right and the more populist right and also kind of um, kind of extreme rightism is that uh, no platform is used as a, as a tactic to kind of deny these people the opportunity to spread their kind of hateful views. Uh, and uh, the, a lot of the work on no platform and kind of free speech on campus comes from a kind of this defence of free speech. But um, my, my book says that there the has to be limits, uh, particularly because free speech can't be divorced from other things happening in society. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, I, I think it's important that that you uh, make that that argument and, and that defense because um, usually people avoid it, um, e- even if they they might uh, agree with it. They they might say, um, uh, I, I suppose they'll talk about hate speech, um, but uh, so so I'd I'd like to explore it a, a little. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you you mentioned the the first amendment in, in the United States. And yeah, when, when it's a, a U.S. based discussion, which a lot of this is in the English speaking world, mm-hmm. um, you know, they, they, they talk about the constitution, but in, you know, in England and in, in the Caribbean where I am or in India or in Canada or, or in other places, uh, Australia and whatnot, there, there is no first amendment. Mm. So, so, so that's an interesting different, uh, um, contextual position, but but generally, it it is seen that you know the cornerstone of liberal democracy is freedom, and the freedom of speech is is seen as one of the you know primary enlightenment uh, virtues. Uh, you know, from the breaking uh, away uh, from the Catholic Church with the with the Protestants, and then. You know, then right up to the French Revolution, I suppose, and and the uh, the, the secular, um, you know, liberal uh, development there. So, what would your argument be against that? You know, mainstream uh, view there. So, I think that a lot of the time is that freedom of speech is seen as being in a kind of like a vacuum uh, that. Obviously, you have to weigh the freedom of speech with other freedoms. Like, even if we go back to kind of, kind of uh, liberal philosophy, uh, a lot of people bring up uh, yeah, Mill and so forth. Is that freedom of speech doesn't exist on its own? It has to, uh, you know, has to work within other freedoms. Other people. Uh, uh, should have freedom from uh, discrimination, freedom from oppression, freedom from being uh, a, a victim of of hate speech, um, and that the freedom of speech, you know, even in the First Amendment terms, is about uh, freedom from government interference. It's not the right to a platform without dissent without confrontation uh so there's this idea that you know freedom of freedom of speech is uh always 
completely desirable to absolute freedom of speech because it's always tempered with other freedoms, but also in the practical sense is that, as I mentioned in the book, is that uh, particularly when there's a speaker at a university or in a public place, is that their freedom of speech is not the only thing they need to consider. There are multiple pieces of legislation which which limit speech in ways there's like uh, kind of um, anti-discrimination laws, there's uh, anti-counterterrorism laws, uh, there's public order laws, there's uh, libel and uh, defamation laws. So there's all these things which kind of have to be balanced when looking at freedom of speech. Right. So now the, I, there are a couple of ways, and, and I'm, I'm really interested in, in the theoretical aspect. We, we will get to the history, which is a, the bulk of, of your, your book, uh, you know, tracing it from Oswald Mosley's days and, uh, to the Powell and the National Front, and, and, and uh, that's, that's very um, important and fascinating. But, but I, I do want to sort of uh, discuss the theoretical aspects because um, there, there are, I suppose, two types of arguments um, that talk about limits to free speech. And, and as you said, um, the, the balancing it off with uh, other types of freedoms, uh, also the, you know, it doesn't mean you, there shouldn't be a, a, a right to no dissent or, or no confrontation. But now, I mean, since you have, I mean, and your history is, uh, that you are outlining here is full of, you know, the communists, the Trotskyists, and so forth. Uh, definitely, um, you know, the classical Marxists um, scoff at bourgeois rights, right? Well, they would they they would mm. say freedom of speech is a bourgeois right, mm-hmm. and uh, and they would um, uh, say that. I, I mean, they. I, I suppose if I use a kind of more contemporary term, they they wouldn't use it themselves, but anti-liberal right so so they you know have no pretense uh, of being liberal they mm. are not liberal they are anti-liberal right and and they have a a, a very well-developed frontal critique of liberalism mm. uh, is that your particular position um uh, i'm very sympathetic to it uh that i'm not a a kind of like die in the wool uh, Marxist, uh, obviously, I see the limits of it, but the the, the Marxist critique of uh, liberal freedoms is, you know, it's very kind of convincing. Is that you know that liberalism talks about these kind of ideal freedoms, but these are these exist as abstract notions which kind of overlook the material world in which they work in and that when we talk about freedom of speech is we that we have to understand the structures the economic the political the social structure the legal structures in which uh freedom of speech works and that if we have this idea that there is absolute freedom of speech and people should have freedom of speech is that we understand the kind of the power imbalances with who actually has freedom of speech in uh, Western capitalist society? Mm-hmm. And uh, I suppose one aspect where it gets um, uh, 
very controversial is the question of violence. Mm-hmm. Um, Antifa, for example, um, you know, openly advocate uh, violence and they say, well, you know, sometimes there are some people that say speech is violence. Um, but then uh, uh, Antifa, I don't think necessarily take that position in general. It's more like, you know, the, the society, there's structural violence. And so this is more kind of like direct action violence. It's, it's kind of more of an anarchist, uh, drawing on a anarchist tradition there. Uh, and, and certainly in the history that you outline, and we'll discuss uh, further, I mean, especially with Mosley and I'm uh, Mosley and the um, uh, British Union of Fascists and, and the communist clashes, the street brawls were, 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 you know, a very big part of that. What, what is, um, uh, what is your view about uh, uh, violence in terms of uh, no platforming? So, um, the I. The kind of a, a militant anti-fascist argument would be that fascists and racists deal in violence. Is that the aim of fascism and the aim of racism is to deny the rights of some people, and that they will use violence to do this, particularly when looking at explicit fascist groups. Um, is that they advocate for violence. Um, and that militant anti-fascists would argue that in order to combat fascism and its violent rhetoric and its violent actions is that you need to use uh, violence and self-defence. Um, so that a lot of the groups are involved in kind of no-platforming but not all of them would argue that uh, you need to take this kind of direct action line and this may spill into violence, but violence is not a desire is not desirable, but it is seen as something which may need to occur. Uh, since uh, no platforming has become national union students policy, it has been more about trying to prevent kind of disorder and violence from occurring by having a policy that's saying we we won't allow these people to come onto campus. Um, so trying to kind of like a bureaucratic uh, stop valve before the violence occurs. So that was one of the things which uh, I descri- described in the book is that in the years leading up to the NUS policy in the 1970s, there have been a series of incidents where students have taken it upon themselves to disrupt speakers, so they disrupt Enoch Powell, the right-wing politician. They disrupt Hans Eysenck, who was a psychologist with very kind of racialized views, uh, and, and disrupt other people. Um, and this had involved violence, um, particularly uh, a small group of Maoists at the London School of Economics in 1973, uh, violently removed Hans Eysenck from uh, a stage when he was trying to give a, a talk. Um, and the NUS uh, policy, which comes out in 1974, is kind of a way to say, if we, have a, if we have this policy, then it will try to kind of 
stop these confrontations because fascists and racists and those kind of people will be barred from being invited onto campus in the first place. So it's kind of like a way to avoid those direct actions. But as soon as the NUS policy was introduced, we have kind of students, um, you know, confronting uh, speakers and uh, that did that uh, does involve confrontation and then instances of disorder and instances of violence. But the kind of militant anti-fascist position would be that violence is not desirable but it might be necessary because uh, fascists have their, uh, want to inflict violence and you, need, you may need to use violence to protect yourself and the wider community. Mm-hmm. And, and what do you think of the slippery slope argument? Because um, you know, what, one of the problems is that uh, the definition of fascism or racism can be very elastic and wide. And so, you know, um, so someone like Alexander Dugan, for example, mm-hmm. uh, is sometimes called a fascist. He would deny it. Uh, and in, in his book, um, uh, uh, Pla- uh, Platonism. Uh, uh, he, he he talks, you know, the, that the Western tradition, Plato, Aristotle, um, you know, they you know they weren't democratic. Uh, you know, they they didn't have a, a particular. You know, they weren't liberal. They weren't democratic. The, you know, the majority of the Western tradition is not liberal, uh, democratic, uh, and. So are they all fascist? Are they all racist? You know, there's a whole debate right now about, you know, tearing down, you know, what monuments should be torn down? You know, how do we deal with certain historical figures? And, and uh, you know, when, when consequences, uh, you know, come uh, for people, you know, losing their jobs and, and um, you know, maybe they might say an offensive comment or whatever, but, but does that make them a... a a fascist or, or a racist uh, that that deserves uh, utter condemnation and exile. You know, so so the whole um, slippery slope argument, I, I suppose, starts off with the fact that the, the who who defines uh, these things and and, and the consequences. What what's your uh, view about um, those types of arguments? Yeah. Um. So the slippery slope argument, um, kind of. Is that it expects that that there's kind of def- that um, that there's definitions um, that that are kind of like not contested at the time. So I think that one of the things is that what you what we see in the history of no platforming is that um, these concepts of who is offensive, who Neat, who should be confronted, who should be um, uh, denied a platform, um, are contested at the grassroots level throughout um, throughout this period where they've had NUS policy and throughout uh, the kind of era as a tactic, is that, um, that, that people are always kind of negotiating um, what who is a fascist? What does fascism mean? What is racism? Is um, is no platforming or kind of 
the denial of a platform, the tactic to be used at this time, uh, what is the way to go about it. Um, I think the the slippery slope uh, argument kind of hasn't really come off um, that for all this kind of these great areas like, say, say, Amber Rudd, the former Home, uh, Home Secretary, being denied a platform uh, at the University of Oxford just before shutdown, um, that these, these uh, instances are in the minority, that most of the times when no platforming is used, it is against kind of the far right, this is against people who are kind of outright um, outright people with kind of the condemnable views. Um, and I think that, it, that no platform also kind of needs to be disassociated from a wider thing which people you know, call cancel culture now. And mm-hmm. that, that no platforming is about a denial of a public or semi-public space. Uh, that that th- I think it, need, it, it, it acts in a similar world, but it can't be totally lumped in with kind of calls for people to be fired from their jobs or, okay. or that um, they'd be shut down on social media platforms and so forth like that. It kind of works on the same kind of principles, but no platform is a kind of a distinct okay. tactic. Um, and and in my work, it is a distinct tactic within universities and colleges. Um, but I understand, I, you know, and I talk about it a, bl- a little bit in the book about how it's linked to discussions about should racists and fascists and also the kind of sexist, homophobes and transphobes, should they be given media platforms or should there be interventions to shut down their uh, social media uh, presence and so for, stuff like that? But I think that those are separate separate arguments which are linked. But I think they don't all fall under no platforming. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off right although you know i and and i mean the slippery slope argument sort of it, we're seeing it in the kind of in the fem, feminist circles the the, the movement against uh, turfs and you know and people like Jermaine greer or you know mm-hmm. uh, you know feminist stalwarts who are now being seen as you know um reactionary and um mm-hmm. 
yeah, they're not being called fascist or racist, but um, but transphobic mm. right? and, and and platforming um, transphobic people. Uh, what what's your view on that? That is that you, that's part of I suppose what the the messy negotiation and, mm. and democracy on 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 um, defining um, what is offensive and what is not, or what is permissible and what is not. Yeah, so I think that one of the things, and this is where a lot of the controversy is around nowadays, and when my research started properly on this topic was around since Jermaine Greer, um, there were calls for her not to be uh, given a platform at Cardiff University because of her views on uh, trans people. And I think that Sarah Ahmed, uh, in her work, has really kind of... uh, done the, the kind of the groundwork for this is that, that she says that when you give a platform to anti-trans people, it is about negotiating. It, it, it seems that people's existence is up for debate, um, that we, we, try, we normally wouldn't give a platform to people who said that uh, People, uh, that people of different races or ethnicities uh, should not exist or should be limited in some way in their existence. We we wouldn't give a platform to people who say that uh, women or gay people or bisexual people um, should have their existence or that their um, lively the the live the they're living kind of limited in some way um, and that the same uh, would be for uh, trans people is that when we debate with anti-trans people, with transphobic people, with uh, gender critical people, is that we are, we are, that kind of suggests that uh, the existence, the rights of trans people is something that can be debated and that Sarah Ahmed says this is kind of a chipping away at the rights of trans people to ju- to to live their lives and um, that in the same way that we don't debate with racists and we shouldn't debate with uh, fascists and with kind of uh, with um with hard uh, homophobes and stuff like that, is that we shouldn't give um, credence to transphobic views, um, and that uh, this is where the controversy has come. Is that you know what is uh, what is transphobia, and do they kind of use that the same kind of language and? Uh, rhetoric and kind of tactics as kind of other groups that have been no platformed um, and other kind of speakers is that should they be applied to that? And, the, and this is an ongoing debate, but part of this ongoing debate is kind of understanding the history of no platform and uh, how it has been used in the past. And one of my book is kind of a suggestion is that there's that while a lot of people said that, there's no platform in the 1970s and 80s, and that was against one thing, and now it's being completely used in a different context nowadays. Is that my book is about, well, 
it has been a tactic which has been negotiated and contested over 40 years and has been applied in different ways. Um, so it's not this kind of epistemological break that happens that's happened sometime in the last 10, 15 years where uh, woke in the kind of students have just decided to uh, shut down everybody um, that they find offensive, um, that this has been something which has kind of ebbed and flowed uh, since the 1970s. Right. And um, and I suppose the last sort of theoretical question, which, which gets into the history, the kind of theoretical challenging question, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, is that... Um, yeah, the, you know, a lot of the arguments that uh, that's used by the left uh, in no platforming, or, or let's say, you know, the Trotskyist communists, or, or the um, yeah, with the hard left, let's say, mm-hmm. um, uh, sometimes you know, they're the exact same principles are espoused by the right to shut down the left. Um, you know, talking about limits to freedoms and balancing against other freedoms. You know, I you know, I remember when you know, communists and socialists were, you know, just persona non grata um, and in, you know, American campuses and, and, and stuff like that. And, and you know, on American TV, you know, it would be if, if you were a communist, that, that would just, you know, you would not even be entertained or, or allowed, unlike, you know, Britain, for example. Um, and then, you know, more in the 90s, I suppose it was in the 80s, but like 90s, 2000s and whatnot, uh, people would use that um, argument about, you know, the limit, the limits of tolerance for Islam, right? Uh, that, mm-hmm. you know, well, you know, we, we shouldn't be tolerant towards Islam because of, you know, their position on women or homosexuals or, or whatnot. And, um, and then even, uh, I suppose, like in the... 70s from before but in in britain in the 70s like with the ira for example uh, you know you paul mccartney's song was banned um you know because it uh, you know any reference to the ira um you know was seen as as promoting uh violence so Mm. so um i I guess it's another aspect of of the slippery slope thing that that it can actually be turned around against the left and it has been in the past Mm. um do you you have any comment on, on that so, I mean, one thing is that people in the centre talk about, um, you know, that uh, the, 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 the tactics and the rhetoric of the far left and the far right are the same. But I think one of the things to kind of uh, what is the end goal of each? So what is the goal of the far right is to have a discriminatory uh, authoritarian society where some people have rights and some people do not have rights uh well where a lot of people don't have rights where there is the kind of no um no kind of freedoms uh for many people but that the left is about um you know it's not about that it's about is about uh trying to make us an improved society for everybody, um, so I think that kind of like that in the centre. If you're equating the far left and the far the far right, is that uh, this idea that uh, you know that we should treat the left 
and the right in the same way was that what is the end goal of both of those? What happens if you give the same credence to the right and the left? And that uh, many people would argue that you see an ascendant uh, far right, you see an ascendant discriminatory system, you know, that the resurgence of the right nowadays, um, you know, Trump, uh, the populist uh, right across uh, continent of Europe, hard right governments in Britain, in Australia, uh, and so, so forth, is that it's because they've because the centre has tried to give the same weight to the right and the left, and try and seen both as kind of adversary enemies, um, and that has allowed the right to kind of. Uh, to pick up the pace, um, I think with uh, kind of other issues. So, with other things like other examples of who else has been uh, denied freedom of speech and and so forth like that, is that um, in my work on No Platform, there are times when they when people push for. Uh, Different other different groups. So in the 1990s, uh, Islamic fundamentalists, particularly Hizb ut Tahrir, is uh, banned from campuses. And the, the NUS policy now that there are six groups banned at the uh, kind of national level, not at the individual student level. So the NUS, uh, no platforms like the British National Party, English Defence League, National Action, but also is a and other kind of Islamic fundamentalist groups. Um, uh, Louis Farrakhan is banned as well. Is the Nation of Islam as, as an um, organization or is it just him as an individual? Uh, I think that is, so that's not intertwined. That's not um, actually kind of explicit in the NUS policy at national level, but I think that would be something that you would see at individual student levels mm-hmm. is that Farrakhan and uh, the Nation of Islam would be uh would be kind of you know platformed by um, individual student unions, and I think that was the case. This is something that one of the few cases that I didn't look at was um, Farrakhan being banned from campuses um, in Britain. Uh, to in I think in the nineties, but um, that there is kind of that weight given by the NUS to both Islamic fundamentalism and the far right as both of kind of. Uh, things that are beyond the pale and should not be given a platform. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get to the um, to, to the heart of of your book. Um, you know, we, we've had a nice sort of discussion about you know some of the the thornier aspects of it, but mm. uh, you know the the, uh, the the main argument of your book is, as you've said in our discussion so far, that that you know no platforming is not a new thing; it's not an aberration; it is part of a long tradition. And uh, you started with um, Oswald Mosley. Is is that correct? Yes. Do we, do we, yeah. And well, you know, perhaps there are some readers, uh, some listeners who may not be familiar with uh, Mosley and his movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't you give a little background to that? Okay. So Oswald Mosley was a British politician. Um, and then in the 1930s, he's began the British Union of Fascists and then later the British Union of Fascists and National Socialists. Um, and he was 
during the depression, he became more uh, interested in uh, fascism in Italy and kind of the the pitfalls of liberal democracy. Um, so he was contemporaneous with Mussolini, with yes. Hitler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. and that he is probably the best known kind of English speaking fascist figure across uh, across the world. Like um, that, he he modelled his party very much along the lines of of Mussolini not uh, and and kind of uh, to a lesser extent um kind of the nazis but very uh, kind of like uh based on uh Mussolini's fascists um yeah. and from the very beginning that the kind of there was an anti-fascist movement in britain which uh said that we can't give uh ground to Mosley, uh, we can't give ground to the BUF um, that they need to be confronted. So the the British Union of Fascists comes around in 32, 33, so just as uh, the Nazis ascend to power in Germany and the, and the communists as well as kind of like trade unionists, parts of the Labour Party, um, are pointing to, to Germany and saying, this is what happens when you don't confront fascism in its infancy, that if you allow fascism to develop, to grow, then you'll end up with what we see in continental Europe. Um, if, if, if you don't mind me just interjecting here, I, I was unfamiliar with Mosley until when I was doing my PhD in the UK, uh, Channel 4 had a, a documentary on Mosley, and it was fascinating. And I mean, and he was really a a very charismatic figure, mm. and, and you you could see how how he could uh, you know attract a lot of people toward him, and and mm. uh, you know what what um you know what I I, I suppose you know the, the danger was in, in in that respect that that he what and uh, and that whole um so 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 the the kind of debates between the the liberal free speech you know so so do you let him you know, speak and, and he's, you know, effective, uh, you know, he was able to, to gather large crowds or, or, and, and, you know, the communists were, you were the real sort of opposition. Yeah. So, mm. um, so it's, it's, it's the kind of same divisions today that, that, uh, we, we were seeing then and that you outlined in your book, correct? Mm. Yeah. So I think that one thing is that, uh, yes, mostly was a very charismatic speaker and, this happens even after uh, his kind of political career is over. He is then invited, uh, uh, as I show in the book, uh, to speak at universities and to speak other places because he was seen as such an eloquent speaker. But uh, the communists and the kind of anti-fascists said that that's only one part of him and his movement is that there is a violence underpinning it. Um, and they show from very early on is that... Um, that while mostly is speaking, he is flanked by bodyguards who are willing to use violence to uh, uh, to break up, um, to uh, put down dissent. So there's a, a famous incident at Olympia, which was a, um, a venue in London, and in 1934, uh, communists and other anti-fascists attempt to disrupt Mosley from speaking 
and they are dealt with violently by bodyguards and turfed out onto the street and and beaten up in um in the streets uh by Mosley's bodyguards and then um there's a lot of arrests of anti fascists and so what the anti fascists in in the nineteen thirties are trying to say is that while Mosley, you know, kind of has the kind of the oratory or oratory skills um of a politician is that his movement is embedded in violence. Um and that we shouldn't allow him freedom of speech because he wants to deny it to others. Right. And then I, I suppose the, the next huge figure after Mosley in Britain is, um, Enoch Powell. Mm. And then the National Front, which, I mean, Enoch Powell wasn't a leader of the National Front. Uh, you know, he was mm. a conservative politician, but not, but, you know, they, they, there was a synergy sort of between them and then the 80s and then later the BNP. Mm. Um, and yeah, so why don't you take us through that part of the history as well? Okay. So, um, after the Second World War, Mosley, uh, Mosley's group is, um, kind of, uh, banned. So the British Union of Fascists is banned. And then we see Mosley and other kind of fascists rebuilding but they are kind of limited the kind of kind of the kind of uh the the political space offered to them but um enoch powell he was a conservative politician he was um a minister uh, in in the conservative government uh in 1964 he was the minister of health um and then when in opposition he becomes more and more vocal critic of immig- of immigration from the Commonwealth to Britain. And in 1968, he makes a famous speech, which is often called the Rivers of Blood speech, uh, where he kind of calls for an end to immigration uh, from the Commonwealth to Britain because he believes that, uh, that one day white people will be... Uh, on the receiving end of oppression from kind of non-white migrants. Um, and this kind of, it excites both the kind of the hard right of the Conservative Party, so things like the Monday Club, which was kind of like a uh, pro-empire anti-immigration group within the Conservatives, but it also excites the the the, the, the extreme right. So the National Front was a fascist organisation which had, been established in 1967 and in 1968 when power speaks they had their first kind of influx of um of of kind of in of members and while power was kicked out of the conservative party he exists uh, oh no he's he's kicked out of the um of the ministry and the kind of any and he's made a backbencher sorry um yeah that while he is um He's still a Tory MP, but a backbencher. He kind of occupies this space, which is kind of the hard right opposition to kind of mainstream conservatism. Um, but also, he is not a member of a fascist organization. So he ha- acts as this kind of populist right wing uh, kind of lightning rod for dissent. And uh, that he has a symbiotic relationship 
with kind of these other groups. So like there's, there's PAL, there's the Monday Club, and then there's the National Front. And they kind of all work within this kind of anti-immigrationist space, um, which is then where we see uh, where no platform is developed in this time when right. there is a kind of uh, this kind of a, f- a far right Miller growing. Right. And that's 74 the, the yeah. NSU. Yeah. So the national union students uh, uh, in April, 1974 uh, comes up with the policy of no platform, which had been pushed by the Trotskyist groups over the last couple of years. Um, so 1972, there was the Ugandan Asian controversy. So Idi Amin in Uganda was looking to Africanize his country and kick out a lot of the uh, Asian population which had come uh, during the time of British rule. And a lot of them still had British passports, so they come to Britain. uh, Mm -hmm. Between 50 and 100,000 come over the space of a couple of years. Um, And this is really used by PAL but also the National Front to kind of like uh, bolster their kind of um, their rhetoric. The National Front have uh, kind of some kind of electoral, not success, but they start making inroads at by-elections and at local elections. So in 1973, they get 16% of the vote in a by-election of West Bromwich uh, in the Midlands. And this kind of worries the kind of anti-fascists is that what is, what is happening is the National Front growing in, uh, you know, in, in electoral strengths, in strength of membership and so forth. And, that, and this worries, um, you know, a lot of people across the board, including uh, the student movement. Right. And now the, the expansion of, of no platforming in the 80s, you... Mm. You, you you speak about that in the book as well. If you could just um, give us a little bit of an idea uh, of that dynamic. Yeah. So the the original NUS policy is uh, uh, is directed at national level. So it's it's kind of like a blanket uh, policy that student unions should deny um, a platform to fascists and racists, but after the National Front kind of wavers in the 1980s, so kind of it's it there's a large anti-fascist uh, movement in the 1970s, and that it kind of the National Front falls apart um, uh, when Thatcher is elected. Um, but individual student unions take no platforming to say that the National Front is not the only problem. So one thing is that it is used against uh, hard-right politicians. So one thing is that in under under the Thatcher government, there is a kind of like a, a quiet uh, a right-wing conservative government and that certain politicians within the Conservative Party uh, are seen as, as, as kind of like um, they should that they should not be allowed to speak, particularly they, they point out people like uh, Timothy Raisin, who was immigration minister at a time when there's a lot of immigration controversy, uh, that the that there was kind of accusations of racial discrimination within the immigration system, or 
backbenchers like John Carlyle, who was a Tory MP, who was also a kind of pro South Africa. Um, so, and then, uh, so, and then people who were members of the Monday Club, like uh, Harvey Proctor, uh, and kind of like so the the kind of the hardline anti immigrationist Tory MPs. There was a lot of confrontation that students uh, wanted to push that to deny access to them. But there's also pushes that there's other forms of oppression in society. So sexism and homophobia are just as bad as racism. Um, so there's pushes throughout uh, the 1980s that, uh, that there should be no platform for sexists. So this becomes student policy at LSE in the early 1980s, and that is overturned. And there's kind of like a fight within the student union over the next couple of years about whether the no platform should exist as, a, as an official policy of the student union, um, but also that students argue that it should be extended to uh, anti-abortionists because anti-abortionism is uh, a form of sexism. So in the mid-1980s, uh, there is an anti-abortion activist named Victoria Gillick and several student unions uh, use no plat- the kind of principle of no platform to uh, deny her uh, um, a platform, but also then when she is allowed to speak, that some students uh, use no platform as a tactic to kind of disrupt um, her from speaking uh, so at places like uh, University of Sheffield and University of Manchester uh, that they uh, kind of disrupt her um, speeches under this guise of uh, no platforming sexist. And then there's also uh, no platforming of um, homophobes. So in Swansea in 1987, uh, a conservative councillor who was very vocal in uh, – his demonization of gay people and their link and kind of the demonization of AIDS uh, that the students um, sought to no platform him for his kind of homophobic views. So my book is kind of traces that since the policy was created in the 1970s, there were people who were saying, well, why should it just be extended to explicit fascists and explicit racists? There are other forms of oppression in society. Uh, that their their views and their actions impact greatly upon uh, different kinds of people and should they be allowed to speak? If we deny uh, a platform to racists and fascists, why shouldn't we deny a platform to pro-apartheid uh, people, to homophobes, to sexists, to anti-abortionists? Right, right. Now, you know... One thing, you know, going through the history um, that you've outlined there um, is I, I, two things stand out to me. Um, w- one is the centrality, it seems, of communists and particularly Trotskyists, you know, as opposed to liberals. And, and so, so it's, it's that, um, uh, I suppose, division within what might, one might call the left, right, between mm. the, the communists and Trotskyists and the liberals. Uh, so that's one thing that stands out. And another thing that stands out, especially from uh, the Mosley days, is the violence. So so the violence that we are seeing 
uh, today sometimes um, is certainly not new when you um, look at it mm-hmm. in a historical perspective. Those, those are two things that really stood out to me. Do you have any sort of uh, comments you want to make on that? Yeah. So, yes, uh, original node platforming is kind of heavily supported by the hard left, uh, by the far left. So, thing, so groups like the Communist Party and the various Trotskyist groups. Um, but actually, it's interesting that in the 1980s, the the, the Trotskyist groups are actually opposed to expanding no platform as a tactic. Um, right. So, so when other other groups, so um, say like so. Uh, it's kind of like the Marxist versus yeah. post-Marxist debate. Yeah. Sense, so they're saying that, that no platform has a particular function in anti-fascism. It can't be used as a blanket kind of uh, tactic. And they kind of like, they argue against no platform. And so kind of the Socialist Workers' Party, who were kind of largely involved in the anti-fascist movement in the 1970s, they kind of say, no, we need to use other forms of activism against uh, sexist homophobes and pro-apartheid people that they can't be no platformed in the same way that will no platform the National Front. But the thing is the momentum is taken away um, just from the trots. uh, So that uh, feminists, some feminists, some uh, kind of black students and uh, Asian students um, and kind of anti-apartheid activists, they say, why should there be kind of different, uh, why should we just um, use these these kind of tactics to confront fascism and racism is that there are other forms of oppression which need to be confronted. Um, So that in the 1980s, as you see the kind of, a kind of like a, the the resistance is disorganized. Um, you know, it's not a particular group arguing no platform should be expanded. It is kind of like individual students and kind of uh, kind of these kind of ad hoc groups which kind of push for the no platforming to be expanded as a tactic um, um, and as a policy. Uh, you know, that it, it, it's a lot of it is directed by feminists, by gay rights activists, by uh, black and Asian activists, uh, students who say that, you know, that um, the, the things need to be confronted in a way that the kind of the organised left, so the Socialist Workers' Party or the Communist Party, are unwilling to do. So it is not just the Liberals like kind of the liberal centre versus the left, but there's also divisions within the left of how to approach these problems. Yeah, yeah. And um yeah, and and, and thinking in a in an American context now, the the sort of parallel American experience, um I I I suppose especially with the BLM um and Antifa um Sort of, I don't know if to call it an alliance or whatever, but 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 with the protests going on right now, I mean, Antifa uh, are 
are certainly taking a lead in um, the violence. And, and there seems to be a division between Black Lives Matter and Antifa, at least at some levels. Um, so that uh, that's an interesting um, ideological split that manifests itself, you know, in, in the real world in, in that way. Yeah, and I think that one thing we need to understand is that when we talk about anti-fascism and we, we nowadays we talk about Antifa, is that Antifa yeah. is not an organisation. It is a movement and it is a series of intersecting interests uh, within it. Um, so there's anarchists, there's Trotskyists, there's communists, and there's other kind of like just militant anti-fascists who have different approaches to things like violence, to protests, to organising, and then also how they see uh, the state, uh, capitalism, the, the right, and to the idea, and to the issues of uh, Black Lives Matters and and racism and so forth like that. So we can't even talk about Antifa as kind of like as something coherent because yeah. it is actually a series of of intersecting interests and i think that you also see this in the in in my book in the 1980s uh that some of the confrontations the the anarchists are fighting with the trotskyists and then fighting with kind of other student activists over what is the approach to take is that should there be a disruption should there be a picket or should there be kind of like uh kind of a vigil or something or or some kind of bureaucratic measure what is the best way to try and limit the space afforded to these kind of racist voices? Yeah, interesting. Uh, um, so, if as we you know wrap up uh, the interview here, um, where do you see this no platforming uh, tactic and strategy going? Um, you know, now, I mean, you know, the, it, your book is, is very much an intervention in, in a debate, mm. um, I would say. So where, how, how do you see the dynamic um, going now? Um, I think that, the, well, the book really got, ends on that the, uh, the, no platform has existed for the last 40 years as kind of a policy and as a tactic um, because the threats which no platform confronts, haven't gone away. They have mutated, they've shifted, they've changed, but they haven't gone away. And I think that in an era when we see kind of an ascendant far right, uh, an ascendant populist right, and kind of the, the, the problems we face today is that I don't think no platforming is going to go away uh, because... The, the reasons why it is used as a tactic and as a as kind of and as a as a policy uh, that the things that it's reacting against are still here. Um, I think that in the age of social media and kind of like the internet, there are different ways in which um, it can influence kind of activism. So there's a, a major push nowadays to. Uh, deplatform fascists and racists from a kind of social media, uh, and to use um, and from using the internet. Um, so there's a latest push for Visa to uh, not allow payments to far right groups, um, and there's kind of like 
these kind of campaigns that should Facebook, should Twitter, should um, you know various other platforms allow fascists and racists to organise on them and to use them. Um, and I think that that's a way in which no platform hat is kind of developing into interlinked but yet separate uh, spheres uh, of of discussion. So there's uh, the idea of like you know, should social media uh, should we be deplatforming uh, people on social media and from the internet? Should mainstream media should like television and radio, uh, particularly television, should they be allowing right far right voices? So um, you know, in the UK, Nigel Farage, who was the leader of UKIP, and then was the leader of Brexit Party, you know, that he uh, has just been uh, axed as a radio presenter. Um, there are pushes that Nigel Farage shouldn't be given kind of television airtime. Uh, people like Tommy Robinson, who helped set up the English Defence League, is that there's, you know, pushes that the, the you know, question time shouldn't, uh, you know, allow him a platform to air his views. So, the way that no platform has existed within kind of the sphere of the university and higher education, it it spills out into uh, into these other spheres. And I think that while the far right and kind of these forces of oppression still exist, is that I don't think no platform will go away because the problems that was created to confront are still there. Right. Well. After reading this book, um, what message would you like to leave your readers with? <laughs> uh, so that I came up with a couple of things in the conclusion to my book that um, uh, that I wanted to kind of to kind of highlight. Um, you know, one thing is that fascism didn't go away in 1945, and is that fascism still exists and the far right still exists as a threat and that we need to uh, be vigilant against this and we need to recognise that while the far right has shifted and fascism has shifted, it still exists um, and still needs to be confronted. Um, That, uh, you know, free speech does not uh, exist in a bubble know that that free speech is often talked about as an abstract concept but uh it has very real applications and is that should we be giving platforms to the far right and to other people who indulge in hate speech and what is the practical outcomes of providing uh people these kind of people with these platforms um you know that while we can't really control uh, you know, students and academics and people who who are in the, the higher education can't really affect the program decisions of of kind of news networks and so forth, is that we can uh, have a say in who is allowed to speak on campus, who is allowed to use the university uh, to dis- disseminate their ideas. Um, and that when 
that when we say that you know free speech, what is the practical outcomes of this free speech if we if people decide to give a platform to the right, to the hard right, to the far right? Uh, that you know, where does that end up? Um, so I think that you know, I think that's the the purpose of the book is to say that the threat still exists, and that if if the if these kind of people are given platforms, is that what can happen, and what can we do to limit limit it, uh, limit their influence, limit their reach, uh, limit their appeal, um, and no platforming is part of breaking down the 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 threat of the far right today. All right. Okay. Well, thanks so much for this interview. I mean, it's been very informative and interesting. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Once again, the book is No Platform, A History of Anti-Fascism, Universities, and the Limits of Free Speech. And we've been speaking to the author, Evan Smith. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That's all for Politics and Polemics this week. If you like this, remember to check out my other podcast, Independent Thought and Freedom, and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Also, if you are an academic and want to get heard nationally, check out my free training at becomeapublicintellectual.com. Thanks, and see you next week. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.